0: Going to be continuing our series in 2 corinthians uh, and we come to a really really fascinating passage in this letter so when i was originally kind of thinking about this series planning it out mapping it out uh, as mario and i were even talking about it a few weeks ago we were looking at chapter 8 and 9 and originally we were going to do chapter 8 as one and then move into chapter 9 um, because when you look at chapter 8 at first glance It seems like, okay, you've got, you know, the first 15 verses that Mario preached on last week, talking about giving, talking about generosity, tying it to grace, and then you kind of have this, like, commendation of Titus, a little personal touch to the letter, and then it moves into more meaty stuff back in chapter 9, so we were going to just do 8 and then move right into 9, and then in rereading it and spending more time on it and praying about it and thinking about it, as I continued to read this section of verses 16 to 24, it quite an obvious burden for me. Like, wow, there's some really, really deep stuff in here that honestly, I think I skipped over the first time. And so we're going to be looking at verses 16 through 24 in Second Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, it's page 967 if you're using the seat Bibles. But if you would please stand with me out of respect uh, for the words of the Lord. This is Second Corinthians 8 starting in verse 16. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us, for we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brothers, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ." So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Please join me in prayer. Lord, thank you for your holiness, for your perfect holiness, and that you give us the privilege, the honor, the joy, the blessing of being able to gather with family to praise you. May this continue to be an act of worship. As we open your word, as we, as we seek to sit at your feet and learn from you, to be molded by you, to be pruned by you, sharpened by you, grown by you, sanctified by you, Lord, make your bride holy. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let me seated. So there are two universal truths, there, there are many universal truths, but there's two specific universal truths about every person in this room. Our lives are defined by two things, what we do and what we believe. And we like to think, we like to hope, and hopefully it's true that what we believe influences what we do, but what we do may reveal that we don't necessarily believe what we claim to believe. Or it may lend testimony, it it may lend weight and credibility to what we say we believe. If I say I believe in loving my wife, and I believe in showing the world around us that our marriage matters and it's important, but all I do is make jokes at her expense and belittle her and demean her in conversation, does it seem like I really believe in honoring my wife? No, why? Because what I do puts light, puts new light on what I claim I believe. And so we all have this, this is true of all of us. We all, you all have things you believe. Every single human has a worldview. Right? We're like, well, I don't believe in anything. I'm agnostic. No, that's a belief system. I don't believe, like, we just believe differently. So every human has a belief system, what they believe to be true. And then every human being also has a set of actions in their life, what they do, how they conduct themselves. This is true of all of us. And it's true of the church when we gather corporately. We have what we believe, we have what we believe as a body to be true, and we have what we do as a corporate body, as an entity, as the local church, an extension of the Bride of Christ. And in these conversations, when you're talking about it individually, it's one thing, but when you're talking about it at the church, I think we tend to lose sight of the distinction between these two, or rather the relationship between these two, and some of the things we wind up taking for granted is, why do we do them? Oh, because that's just what you do. Consider it. Some of these are going to be obvious. Why do we, when we gather, why do we sing songs? Is singing songs just a, I've heard this from many Christians. Well, you know, that's, sing, uh, that's just not for me, right? Like, I've just never been a singer. I'm just, that's not who I am. I, I don't really like music. I've never been a singer, right? So like, I'll show up, you guys sing, and, and I'm just kind of here to listen. Well, no, we can point to scripture that says, enter his courts with thanksgiving and his gates with praise. I can point to numerous psalms that say, sing a song to the Lord. Ephesians says, when you gather together, address one another in what? In psalms and songs. So we can point to what we do and say it is based on what we believe about the Bible, that the Bible commands us to do these things. Why am I up here right now preaching? Well, because that's what you do. Right? You show up, somebody talks for 25 to 35 minutes, and then you go home and you, know, you don't think about it until next Sunday when they talk about whatever other topic popped up on their mind. Like, No, we do this time of the service because we can point to scripture where it says, preach the word in and out of season, where it points to those in the church who are called to teach and exhort, to open the scripture, unpack the scripture, and issue challenge from the scripture. So corporately, what we believe dictates what we do. What about some of the church stuff that just seems more like good business? What about that? And this is one of the things that stood out to me in this passage where I was originally like, okay, it's just a commendation to Titus. But when you dive into it, you realize this really incredible thing that I know to be true, that I believe to be true, but sometimes I lose sight of, that God's word is sufficient for all things. And it is relevant to all things as the church. So when I was called here to be lead pastor, Here's what the practice looked like here's what it looked like as it played out we have an elder board and when we didn't have a lead pastor the elders as your elected leadership in this congregation they got together and then they also chose several people from the congregation from all of you to serve with them on a search committee and then that search committee of elders and congregants interviewed several people we had the conversations. We talked about what's your flaw, right? Like we go through the interview process and then the elders on behalf of that search committee, on behalf of the church, extended the invitation to Adeline and I to be the lead pastor. And we accepted that. Is that just good business practice, Like, right? That just makes sense. If I worked for Walmart, I would interview people before I hired them. If I worked for an accounting firm, I'd be like, hey, do you have an accounting degree, right? So, so when the church does it, is it just good business sense? Is it just good common sense? I think for a lot of us, we say, yeah. And honestly, I think looking at the American church, looking at the evangelical church in America, we've lost sight of the fact that, no, everything we do should be rooted in and founded on and based on and determined by scripture. Nothing should just be policy. Nothing should just be kind of an arbitrary system that we come up with. And when we look at this passage in Corinthians, we see that that is indeed the case. Because here are the things, there's what we believe and there's what we do, and Scripture is sufficient for all of those things. Listen to these passages in Timothy. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Then you have 2 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3 and 2 Timothy 3. Very easy to keep these passages together in our minds. Starting in verse 14, "...but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you taught it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus." All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So in First and Second Timothy, we see this foundational truth that God's word is authoritative and sufficient for whatever we come across. It's sufficient for what I believe, and then it is sufficient to, to govern, to lay out, to lead me in what I do both individually and corporately. And so now we come back to 2 Corinthians 8, and I want to reread verses 17 to 19. Talking about Titus, and then an unnamed brother. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace what do we see in these verses? We see an incredible picture, an incredible look into the relationship between the church with one another, between leadership and those they're leading, between leadership and leadership itself, between those who are being led and the others who are being led. We see church relationship play out in Scripture. It's incredible. What does it say? It says, we appealed to him. We as leadership made this appeal, issued this call to Titus. It goes back to chapter 8, verse 6 that Mario read last week. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Hebrews thirteen seventeen: 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Here's the really uncomfortable verse that a lot of people don't like to talk about. But yes, I and the elders expect you to submit to our authority, if we are leading in a godly way. If we are not leading in a godly way, if we are leading in an ungodly way, no, don't submit to our authority, but also ask, why'd you elect us in the first place? But if we are leading in a godly way, yes, we expect you to submit to that. So when we call for you to do things, when we issue challenges for you, we expect you to respond appropriately. It's laid out in scripture. There is authority in the church. They made the appeal to Titus. Paul talks about this in his letters. It's clear. But then what else do you see? You see that the congregation does not have no voice. It's not voiceless. That would have been a better way of phrasing that. Right? You all are not just mute sitting there. There is not an absolute lack of you know, intentionality on your part. You have a part to play in this, a very significant part to play in this. It says what? We appealed to him. But then it also says the churches appointed him. The people appointed him. Acts 6, verses 2 and 3. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. 1 Corinthians 16, 3 to 4, Paul's writing this is his first letter to this same group of believers in Corinth. And he says, when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. See, the people have a voice. The people have a responsibility. It's not just on the leadership. The people have a responsibility to know one another, to be choosing people to serve in this way, to be giving that appointment, to be giving that weight and that recognition. He says, those whom you accredit will carry this. Those whom you accredit will carry out this task. In Acts, the leadership says to the people, hey, look amongst yourselves, look internally, and pick people to do this. So it's not just about the leadership. It's not an authoritative dictatorship where it's the elders in a room and nobody else has anything to say or any value to add to the conversation. This plays out time and time again in the New Testament, this mutual submission of leadership to the people and people to the leadership. And then also, what do you see at the very end? A little tiny detail in the middle of those verses about Titus. When the elders sat down with Adeline and I to say, hey, This is where the the team landed. Did they say, we have decided you are going to be our lead pastor. Here's your start date. No, they extended an invitation. They extended an invitation and then we had a decision to make. And we chose it. We accepted it. What does it say about Titus? Don't overlook this fact in the middle of Titus. It says, he himself is eager and he's doing this of his own accord. So once again, it's not this unhealthy boss, it's not this taskmaster saying, Paul didn't say, Titus, this is what you must do, you have to do it, you have no say in the matter. He says, no, we make this appeal to you, we make this challenge to you. As the leadership trusted with this, we urge you to do this thing. We are calling you to do this thing. The churches have appointed you to do this thing. The people have lended their voice to this. The people have lended their way to this. And then Titus has to make the decision to take part. And it says he was eager to participate in this. So now you not only have leadership submitting to the people and the people submitting to leadership, you also have the individual is recognized as having a decision. And so the leadership is making the appeal. The people are making the appointment. The churches are making the appointment. But then the individual Titus is also making the decision to accept. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. This incredible picture of a church body working in harmony where everyone is filling their roles and it's moving together in a holy way for impact. It's incredible to see these details in Scripture like this. And then what else do you see about the relationship between leadership to one another, leadership to the people, the people to leadership, the people to one another? Verse 22, what does it say in there? It says, with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters. When I felt called into ministry, the conversation did not go like this. Hey, Central District, I think I want to be a pastor. Okay, cool, you're now a pastor. I didn't just call the elders and say like, hey, I think I want to be a pastor. Okay, cool, you're now the pastor. There was testing, there was examination. There was, okay, let's make sure this is a real calling. Let's make sure there's been investment here. Let's make sure there's there's effort to make sure that you are ready for this. Am I fully ready for this? No. Week one on the job, you get hit with something that you have no clue how to handle with. But there's still an investment of, okay, let's make sure we're not just sending you in arbitrarily, randomly. It's, no, we're going to take our time. We're going to test. We're going to examine. We're going to make sure that this is right, this is good, and we are setting ourselves up well. This is, again, something you see throughout Scripture. Consider 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Some translations may say, study to show yourself as one approved. Why? Because that word approved comes from the idea of only being approved after being tested and examined. And this is not like, I've been tested by the trials of life. This is not a, you know, I went through trial. This is no like literal testing. This is, hey, leadership, those in authority have sat down and have made you answer questions, have examined you, have pressed you, have pushed you to see if you believe correctly, to see if you can handle the truth correctly, to see if you can communicate the truth correctly. So Paul says to Timothy, if you're going to be a leader, you have to make sure. He says, do your best. It was the idea of put in effort, put in work, study, get ready for this because you're going to be tested. So this idea of being approved is approval that only comes after examination. It's the same idea in Titus 1.9, speaking of the qualifications for an elder, and it says, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. What comes before this man is identified, this elder is identified, as qualified to be an elder. He's been taught. He has been taught sound doctrine it says he must be able to hold to the sound doctrine as taught so it's the idea that the church has a responsibility to examine its leadership to not just hand it out willy-nilly but to say hey we take this calling seriously we take this is, is, take this with weight and so we will test we will examine those who are called into leadership those who are going to be given these more significant positions of visibility not significant in terms of impact please don't get that twisted Everyone is significant in the church. It is complete fallacy to think that only leadership is significant to the church. It's a different level of visibility. It's a different position. It's a different role. Okay? Which of your four car tires is most important? We'll tell you what, I'll go remove one and we'll see if you still think that's the same answer. No. There's significance for all of us there's a level of visibility, there's a difference of visibility, and it's the idea of those in leadership, those called to, and make no mistake, it is a high calling. It is a high and holy calling. Scripture is abundantly clear on that, but the idea is very clear that the church has a responsibility to examine those called to this, to make sure that they are approved. And so even the things that we may be tempted to write off or just categorize as good business practice no, we should be looking at Scripture to allow God's Word to inform and dictate and found our approach to these things. It's, it's awesome. It's awesome to see that God means it when He says His Word is sufficient for all these things. And then as we continue in this, this passage, we come to uh, what I will say is the most convicting part of this passage for me. These next several verses are where I am most tempted to err, to slip up, to forget what God says and to sin in doing that. How many of us, don't raise your hands. This is this is an internal reflection question. How many of us have been tempted to say or have said, well, who cares what they think about me? Only God can judge me. Only God can judge. 100% true. I'm not disputing that. Don't soundbite this. God is the only eternal judge. But how many of us then take it to an unhealthy extreme? Well, who cares what their opinion is? Who cares what they think about me? They're not, they're not the ones sitting on the judgment seat. So I'm going to say what I say because it's true. I'm going to do what I do because it's true. And if you don't like it, deal with it. I mean come on, let's be honest. Is it tempting when we're thinking about people who disagree with us, who we know aren't speaking truth? We know truth is on our side. So isn't there that temptation to be like, well, they're wrong, so who cares what their opinion is? What does God say in his word? What does he say as he's talking about this gift? Keep in mind, this whole passage is coming in the context of a literal, physical, monetary gift. Mario unpacked it last week, the collection the collection of monies for distribution to poor churches. So we're talking about very real, physical, tangible assets. That is the context of this passage. And what does he say? He says, we are traveling with multiple people, right? Like those who have been appointed. So as we go to deliver this, as we take possession of this and go to deliver this, there's multiple of us. People who are in good standing, people of integrity. Why? What does he say? Verse twenty starting in verse 20 through verse 21. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us, for we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. This ties back to a passage in 1 Corinthians where he's again talking about the idea, which ties back to a passage in Romans where he's talking about the idea of, hey, let multiple people be in charge of these funds. Why? So that no one can accuse you of mishandling them. So that there's accountability. So that there's integrity in this. What does scripture say? That even those who would oppose us should be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. So he says we aim, we do this, we conduct ourselves with the highest degree of integrity and visibility and transparency so that we do what is honorable in the sight of God and of man. Consider these verses. Romans twelve seventeen repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Romans fourteen nineteen so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. First Peter two twelve keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Well, no, I still like to say, forget the world. Who cares about them? Who cares what they think? My boss is an idiot. My coworkers are idiots. My neighbors are idiots. Who cares what they think? Their opinion doesn't matter. So those first couple of verses, Sam, no, you're just, those just have to do with what the church thinks. I'll care about what my fellow believers think about me, but who cares what the non-believing world thinks about me? That's what that's, So, okay, the first verse is fine, I'll accept it, but that's just talking about inner church relationship. All right, 1 Peter 2.12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. When we preached through the series on First and 2 Peter, we looked at that phrase specifically, the day of visitation. If anyone needs a reminder, what that's talking about is when God shows up and convicts someone, when God convicts an unbeliever, when the Holy Spirit convicts an unbeliever, our conduct should lend testimony to what God is saying. So that when they look at our lives, Gentiles who speak against you as evildoers, those who are not believers, but when God shows up to convict them, they reflect and they say, yeah, you know what? The Christians in my life, their behavior actually lends testimony to what you're saying. And they glorify God on the visitation, on the day of visitation. First Timothy 3.7, again, speaking of elders. Hey, if you want to be in leadership, if you feel called to be in leadership, one of the qualifications of being a leader of the church Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Titus 2, 7-8, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good work, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. We need to let those verses sink in. We need to, I need to let those verses sink in. I need to not lose sight of this call in Scripture. That yes, I am to do what is honorable in the sight of all. That those outside the church, those who would oppose the church, have nothing to criticize or condemn. If they're going to criticize and complain and condemn about the truth of God's word, okay, that's a different thing. We're talking about my conduct. We're talking about your conduct. We're talking about the way that the Christian, the way that the church represents herself, represents Christ, the bridegroom in the world. I've heard plenty of fair criticisms levied against the church. I have. If we're being honest, I would bet we all have. That when we've heard people not in the church criticize the church or say why they're not interested in the church, there's a degree of, yeah, they've, they've got a fair point there. That cannot be the case. God says it. What does he say? He says an opponent may be put to shame. I mean, imagine how beautiful it would be if the unbelievers in this world, if the unbelievers in your life were listening to someone criticize Christians and they were like, no, that's just, that's not true. No, you can't say that the church is too selfish and too inwardly focused and they don't care about people. The church, they are the most loving group of people on this planet. They do more for the poor and the orphans and the widows, all of which are laid out in Scripture, than anyone else. They do more for the benefit of society. They pray harder for society than anyone I mean, like, what if people wanted to criticize the church and those listening had to say, no, I'm sorry, your criticism just doesn't have any weight. What a testimony that would be. So that's why Paul makes it a point to say, hey, with this handling of money, we behaved with such integrity, such transparency, such accountability, so that what we were doing would be honorable in the sight of everyone. Because we are called to a high and holy standard, and we can never allow ourselves to shirk back from that individually or corporately. Don't take it too far. Is Sam saying that God, his opinion doesn't matter as much as the world's? No, of course not don't don't take it too par right like when paul says like wait so we're saying that because grace abounds sin can abound all the more and he says no may it never be so so we are not saying that we give the world around us the observing unbelieving world as much authority and significance in our life as god no one's saying that scripture's not saying that listen to acts this is acts 4 18 to 20 so they the leadership of the people So they called them, them the apostles, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So when the world expects us to do things, when the world expects us to behave, when the world expects us to say things that are in direct opposition to what God has said, of course we ignore the world. Of course we set aside the world's opinion. Of course we obey God when it comes to a blatant violation of what God has called us to. But when it's not that, do we give weight to the world's opinion? Those around us, those watching us, those observing us. Make no mistake, you are being observed every day in your life. Any of you who have ever had kids or had nieces or nephews or been around kids for 10 seconds know this is true. I dropped something the other day, and I went, ah, crud, right? I didn't swear. I didn't say, like, this wasn't, this isn't a confessional moment, right, where I did something horrific. I just, I dropped something. I went, ah, crud. Not 30 seconds later, Violet, my daughter, dropped something, and she goes, ah, crud, right? Like, we are being observed constantly. Your coworkers are observing you. Your neighbors are observing you. Your family members, your friends, they are observing you. And so what Corinthians reminds us, what the New Testament time and time again reminds us is that we are called to conduct ourselves in such a way that it lends testimony to the message of the gospel, that it lends weight to what we profess we believe. It goes back to what we believe and what we do and we've got to give thought to this. We cannot neglect this. Why? Why does this matter? Why is this so significant? What is this passage building to? Why did we take time to look at, yeah, even the nitty gritty behind the scenes details. I mean, I'll say it this way. I would not be surprised if some of you are sitting here and after I finished the first part about how I was in it, like if some of you were like, I never cared to know that much about what went on behind the scenes. Like, I just, I never cared to know that much about the details. So why spend time on it? Why look at it? Why does Scripture talk about it? Why do we study it? Why do we emphasize doing what is right and honorable in the sight of all? Because this passage in Corinthians reminds us, this passage in Corinthians calls us to, that everything in our lives must be about the glory of God. What is the glory of God? Who's heard that phrase before, the glory of God? Yeah? God's glory. The weight of his glory. The significance of his glory. What is it? I mean, how many of you? If your neighbor showed up and was like, hey, what? The glory of God? Define that for me in terms that I can understand. Could we do it? Could we do it quickly and concisely and clearly? Scripture lays it out pretty clearly what the glory of God is. And I admit, I haven't always thought of it as something specific. You know, I'm kind of like, oh yeah, the glory of God, it's this nice idea, right? Like, it's, this, it's true, I'm not belittling it, but yeah, what's the glory of God? You know, it's, it, it's what makes Him great. No, what is the glory of God? What does Scripture lay out as the glory of God that appears in this passage several times? Consider these verses. This is Verse 19. Not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches, as we carry out this act of grace, for the glory of God himself. And then you jump on into verse 23. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. The glory of God, the glory of the Lord, the glory of Christ. What is it? Well, this word in the New Testament that we translate glory... It's got an Old Testament corresponding word, and these two words convey the weight, the infinite intrinsic weight of who God is, the infinite intrinsic worth of who God is. These were very heavy words, like these were significant words. These weren't words that in Hebrew or in Greek that you would toss around all the time, that you would just use casually. Like, I would say a word that we have taken all weight from in today's society is love. Oh, I love, I love that store. Do you really, you really love that store? You have deep emotional bond and connection to that store? I love these shoes. Really? You really, you love those shoes? Oh man, I'd love a milkshake. Really? Right, like we have taken the weight away from love. But these words, these were words that did not have the weight taken away from them because they were used very specifically in very reserved quantities, used to describe the heaviness, the magnitude of who God was. And so when you see these words, recognize that Scripture is talking about something very serious and significant. I love the way John Piper describes it. John Piper says, it's the outward radiance of the intrinsic beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. That's a very complicated way of saying it. Yeah, it is. Piper does that. But if you, if, you, if you boil down what Piper's saying, what he's saying is it's God's holiness on display. God's glory is his holiness on display, the outward, the manifest radiance of his perfections. It's God's holiness on display. And Piper bases that off of, these are the, I'm just, these are the passages Piper uses, and it makes sense. So those are the passages we're going to use to understand this. Because God gave us scripture. Piper he points to Isaiah 6, 3, talking about the angels, speaking about the Lord. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Hebrews 1.3, speaking about Jesus, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So God's glory is when His holiness is put on display for people to see and observe. This is what Scripture is talking about. So when Paul is writing this to the Corinthians, and he says, hey, we do this for the glory of God, We are messengers of the church, which is the glory of Christ. It's God's holiness on display. It's us presenting to the world a testimony of who God is, that our lives are defined by what we believe, and we are willing to conduct ourselves in such a way that lends credibility to that, that shows we're serious about it. And God's glory, his holiness on display, must drive the church. The glory of Christ in Christ alone must be the burden on the heart of the church and on the heart of every individual believer. Man, woman, child, I don't care what your age is. If you are a believer in Christ, you should be consumed with showing the glory of God to the world. Soli Deo Gloria. One of the greatest phrases in the Latin language. To the glory of God alone. This passage emphasizes it. It's why church behavior matters. It's why individual behavior matters because everything must be about the glory of God alone. This is uh, earlier in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 4. In their case, talking about unbelievers, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Verse 15, for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. See, when God's people are being sanctified, when God's people are being transformed from one degree to another to look more like Christ to be more like Jesus, that is to the glory of the Lord. As people see us and see the difference and see the change, God gets the glory. As more and, people, more and more people abound with thanksgiving and receive this mercy, what does that do? It brings glory to God. The testimony of people praising Him, the testimony of people thanking Him, the testimony of lives being changed by Him are His glory. Psalm 96, 2-3, to three, sing to the Lord, bless His name, tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. Ezekiel thirty-nine, twenty-one: God says, and I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid on them. Isaiah 43, six to7, God speaking. He says, "I will say to the north, give up and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Can you see other people in this room? Just look at, can you see me? Your eyes are all facing up here. I mean, am I physically visible? I was created. I was physically, visibly created. You were physically, visibly created. Why? What does God say? For His glory. Isaiah 66, 18 to 19. God is speaking. He says, For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pull, Ludd, who draw the bow, to Tibal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 3.17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 1 Thessalonians 2.10-12, You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. 2 Thessalonians 1, 11-12, To this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for what? that God may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is all about the glory of Jesus. That's it. Period. Church is not about being where your friends are. Is that a nice side benefit? Absolutely, my best friends in this area are here in this room. I mean, truthfully, I love hanging out with you guys. That's a great benefit to church. Church is not about that. Do I enjoy sitting next to my wife for worship services? 100%. It is one of my favorite things in this life to hold her hand and sing praise songs together. Guess what? Church is not about that. Oh, shoot, my wife's not here. I guess I can't worship God. Church is not about anything other than the glory of Jesus. Your life is not about anything other than the glory of Jesus. That is what my life is all about. And so I will do whatever it takes to point to the holiness of Christ, to put His glory on display. If that means being a servant, that means being a servant. If that means biting your tongue, that means biting your tongue. If that means being kind and gracious and gentle and merciful, then that's what it means. If that means being resolved to stand in the truth, even if you're standing alone, then that's what it means. It means that everything is for the glory of Christ, that the world would see Him and Him alone. That's what Paul is reminding the Corinthians of. That is what the New Testament, the Old Testament, what God, through His authors, through the people who were actually not His authors, through His scribes, through the people who wrote down what He authored, that is what God is saying since time began that this is about His glory. And so we concern ourselves with the way we conduct business. We concern ourselves with the way we appoint leadership. We concern ourselves with the way we lead, we concern ourselves with the way we submit to leadership, we concern ourselves with the way we submit to one another because it's about the glory of Christ. We concern ourselves with what the observing world thinks of us because it is about the glory of Christ. And there is no privilege better there is no honor better. There is, I mean, think of what happens, what big international event happens every four years? The Olympics. What is a huge deal every Olympics? What, what's the big, I mean, articles get written about it, the sport, the broadcasters talk about it. What's a huge deal of the Olympics? Opening ceremonies. What is a huge deal within the opening ceremonies? Who gets to carry the flag? Who gets to represent their country? Who gets to say I am the standard bearer of my nation? That's a huge deal. People cry when they get interviewed about it. I mean, it's, you know, they talk about the lineage like this is such a significant thing to the observing world. Friends, brother, sister in Christ, you have been given that right. You have been given that privilege. You have been given that opportunity. You have been given that joy and that blessing to walk out among the world and say, I represent Christ. May we never forget it. May we never diminish it. May we never lose sight of it. May we never trivialize it. May we never think of it as just good policy. May we never think of it, well, I don't know, that's just what we do. I mean, what if What if each and every one of you in this room Do you think next Sunday would be different if each and every one of us, myself included, showed up and said, I don't care what I'm used to, I don't care what my preferences are, I don't care about any of that, I don't care about my personal opinion, my only aim next Sunday is that Jesus would be glorified in every single thing that I do once I enter this property, even when I'm driving here, even when I wake up getting ready. Do you think Sunday services might be different? I do. I do. I think if the church a hundred percent commitment. Is that outlandish? Yeah, man, look at the statistics. You know the stats. You know the stats of how few people, you know, do this. Like, you know the stats of, of every church in America, of how many people don't engage in like you know the stats. Who cares about statistics? What if we were the first church with 100% all-in? What if, what if, what if we were the first church in Mansfield with 100% all-in? Where we were the statistical anomaly. Where every single one of you, every man, every woman, every child, showed up with one undying, unyielding commitment to see Jesus glorified in their life. And the way they treated one another, the way they engaged with the church. Do you think that church would look different? I do. So let's be that church. Because that is who we are called to be. A church for the glory of Christ and Christ alone. So as we consider these things this week, let's read 1 Thessalonians 5 and Titus 3. And then reflect. Reflect and apply. Do something with this. Actually do something with this. Ask yourself and then pursue, how will you reflect the glory? We cannot generate the glory. Don't make any mistake. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians 3. Real quick recap, right? As we behold God's glory, we are being transformed. We can't generate it on our own. So if you're trying to do it on your own, stop it. As we reflect the glory of God and then display his holiness. So how are you going to do that this week? How are you personally going to reflect, behold, reflect, and display the holiness of God at home and at work this week, in your neighborhood this week, in the grocery store this week, in the hardware store this week? How are you personally going to take ownership for displaying God's holiness, representing his glory to the world? Let's go after that together. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for who you are we thank you that we get to behold you. That we get to come before you and and behold you in your majesty, in your splendor, in your mercy, in your grace, in your strength, in your power, in your truth, in your conviction, in your boldness, in your tenderness. We get to behold who you are. And you have given us the right, you have given us the privilege, the blessing to be called your sons and daughters to reflect your holiness, to display your glory for the world to see. Lord, lead us in this.